Welcome back to everybody's favorite podcast, the AAC podcast. We're here with myself, Mickey, Reese, Adam, and Jazz. How are we, boys? Howdy. Well, you have us here on a Wednesday just past the afternoon, and today's topic is going to be on footy players, specifically AFL and SANFL players and how we manage training loads throughout the season. So we're going to break it down, starting off from the off-season, going into pre-season, and then finally going into in-season, and we'll break that down a little bit further from there. So we've worked extensively over many years with athletes of junior ages, going through their SNFL ranks. We've gone through senior players, gone through their SNFL ranks, a few players that are looking to get drafted in the AFL too. So, Reese. Would you like to kick us off by giving an example of what a typical off-season might look like for a footy player? Um, well, I mean, off-season is probably our best time as strength and conditioning coaches because we have these guys super fresh. Um, I mean, they may have come off a little beat up from season, but they're not playing, they're not training. We get a little bit more say with what we can do with their program, uh, which is always fantastic. So we just try and get to build, build them up, make them as robust as we can, um, and we get to have a little bit more fun with their program. So it's just about layering on some strength, building a nice strong base, touching on any little niggles they've built up over the season, anything that, you know, little worry spots. Uh, we get to do a little bit of speed stuff as well. We can have them sprinting, which is always good fun. We can do some testing with them, see where they're at. And honestly, after that, it just goes by individual. We see what the athlete needs. We see, you know, what they want what we think, well, not what we think they want, but what we know they want. And then from there, we can just build up. Yeah, so usually at the start of any off-season, the athletes will either go under the knife in the first week or two if they need to uh, repair anything. If they don't, fantastic, we get more time to work with them. But this is the main time where we have probably a gap of about six to eight weeks at the very, very maximum, where we can actually increase their strength, look to improve their speed, and just honestly get them as healthy as possible and as strong as possible going into the start of preseason. And also one big thing for us in off-season is just making sure the athletes stay off the couch. A lot of people like to use that as eight weeks of let's just chill out and drink. Yep, I'm sure there's a lot of Mad Mondays that turn into <laughs> multiple Mad Mondays, uh, but the quicker that we can get them away from that phase, obviously they need that time to relax, but at the end of the day, this is the one six-week block that they have to actually get some strength gains, and if they're constantly doing that, that's obviously going to diminish the amount that they can actually get stronger. I think a really big part of what you get in the off-season as well is because we work with so many developing players, like there is a fairly good chance that they're going to need to add some muscle, especially you get those kids young. You know, they're, they're really talented. They're good athletes. They just need to put on some size to cope with senior level footy, be that at Sandville or AFL level. Doing that in the off-season can make it way easier because the running loads are less, the total training load is less, the stress is less. You really find it much easier to add muscle in that phase of training rather than trying to do it through the season. Obviously, it's still possible, but it's just so much easier to do it through the off-season. So that's going to be something that you address in the off-season if it needs to be ticked off as well. Mm-hmm. And then we go into uh, either early to late November, if not sometime December when you get COVID hitting. <laughs> um, but this is the time where they kick on with pre-season. And if you've never seen or never gone through a typical footy pre-season, there is a lot of running. There is a lot of running and they 
do build it up, but from day dot, they will get them running quite extensively. Something we kind of didn't mention was, because you can make such bigger strides in the off-season programming, I think it's really important that you target the specific tissues that you know are going to take a beating in pre-season. This is where, like Mickey mentioned, the calf, uh, sorry, the running loading, the calves, the hamstrings, that whole posterior chain. You're going to really struggle to do much with it in pre-season in particular because it doesn't matter what club you're at, they're going to be running lots. And different clubs have different definitions of lots, but it's always going to be plenty. So in terms of getting tissue strength up in the hamstrings and the calves, you really want to do that in your off-season so that they go into pre-season and run lots on a good foundation rather than going, oh shit, we need to make their calves stronger. And you're trying to do that on the back of what could be Christ only knows how many Ks of running each week. I've gone through, oh, what, five, six uh, off-seasons and pre-seasons with um, footy players at this stage. One thing that I've learned is as soon as pre-season hits or pretty much the first week or two into it, you get rid of your traditional compound movements. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I programmed a squat or a deadlift for a player that, uh, for a footy player that's just gone into pre-season. Their body is just simply too banged up to be able to carry enough load within that exercise to elicit any kind of effect. And if anything, it's probably going to hurt them and just diminish, diminish their running capacity once they actually get to preseason training. We did a lot of single leg loading when I was in the VFL. It was all, let's break it down, take the load down, find a way to make it a useful change where we can, but it didn't look like back squats. We did it for a little bit, but when we were doing it, we were doing two sets of two, two sets of three, like... Because most players, like that wasn't actually the initial plan, but that was where I ended up having to go because we did try and, we wanted to try and keep some heavy loading in there and we did it to the best we could, but it didn't look like the original plan. For me, hamstrings are never the first one to go. It's usually their lower back. There's not much stop and start, change of direction when it comes to preset, especially that early stage. It's very much straight line, long distance runs. So their hamstrings usually won't go but their backs will take a toll. So if you're loading their backs even more through heavy compound squats and deadlifts, you're asking for disaster. That was one of the, I think that was the first thing we did away with, in honesty. I think it was the first movement that got canned because it was like, it was, it's a battle not worth fighting when you put yourself in their shoes and they're running big, big. So when, like, we, I'm pretty sure, top of my head, the first movement we did away with was back squats because especially once you get the taller players, you're trying to get Ruckman, who's running massive Ks, to try and back squat with what that's doing to him. It's just not worth it. You move it to a single leg variation and say, let's do this instead. Like, yeah. At a certain point, you can beat your head off the wall and say, I want a back squat, but we don't always get what we want. So, You can still develop younger players to get some training get some training gains throughout the pre-season, but we notice as you do more and more pre-seasons, that load is literally just to maintain tissue quality yeah. and just to keep them out there and keep them running. Yeah. I think some of the clubs I've seen do a really good job at AFL level. One, I know was giving the players the option. So they would have the option of a single leg, a double leg, a hinge, or a hip thrust. It's like, as long as you hit one of these at these loads that are individualized to you, that counts kind of thing. It was like, we need a heavy leg variation. You choose how you do it. And the players seem to be really big on that because they liked having that, okay, my low back's cooked. I won't do the RDL. I'll hit the single leg squat or the hip thrust maybe. But if they felt good, then I know there was a couple of players in that team that liked to back squat. They felt better after it, so they would back squat unless they actively couldn't. Yep. Do you think why Alex Natera's running for isometrics has been so popular because of the loading? It sort of diminishes. I definitely takes think, away I think 
resistance training. I think how specifically that carries over, players feel great after doing it, so there's an immediate buy-in, and the fact that they can do it without nailing tissue to the wall is is a really big part of it as well. Like, it's, it's the best possible workaround. Yeah. And then you can load that as well, because you're doing a lot of that with Smith Machine, so you can load it in stable conditions and really get some killer benefits out of it. I'm not sure if you're the same, Adam, but during pre-season, although we have taken out those compound movements... I like to still keep in one sprinting session a day or at least get them sprinting a couple max sets a day because I know they're being exposed to a lot of running but predominantly longer distance running. How do you do it? They had to sprint once a week. They were always exposed to sprinting in training at least once a week with us. We had had our boys Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and I think we... I'm sketchy on it. It was a while ago. I think it was Tuesday that they would sprint regardless. And it'd be run-throughs in the warm-up. Like, it wouldn't be heaps. It'd be... Two sprints, cool, hold them to it, check it on the GPS, yep, fast enough, off you go. For those that aren't working, I guess, with the club directly, would you still get them sprinting? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if if they're at a cl- if you've got someone privately like we do in this environment and they're at a club where that club might have another S&C, you can check in with them and that's where the conversation's important. And if, you can, if you're in a position where you can talk to that coach directly, even better. But even if you just talk to the player and say, hey, are they having you do dedicated sprints? Yeah, awesome. We can leave it on the table. But if not, that's fine too. We'll just have them sprinting here. And yep. here we're talking max effort sprints hitting sort of peak velocities, you not really, repeat efforts of... No, correct. It can be two sprints with a five-minute break in between, and I'm happy with it. It's just got to be something ideally 95% north of their max velocity. Yep. Now, not everyone's able to do that with GPS... But if you can hand time it, you can still take 95% and you can talk about it in terms of effort as well. It's still better than nothing. I've been at clubs where we haven't had anything other than stopwatches. You can still make it happen if you want to find a solution to it. Yeah. Now, as we get towards the pointy ends of pre-season, usually we're talking around the late February to March. They'll have a couple of weeks where they go for a little bit of lighter training loads, at least typically that's what I've seen. And this is just before trial matches start. This is now a small window where you don't need to overload the athlete, but if you want to introduce just the smallest amount of compounds, this is probably where you can do just a little bit. You don't want to go too far to introduce too much new stimulus because that will injure the athlete. But if you want to give them a little bit of heavy lifting during this time, this is your last opportunity before trial games and the season starts. Yeah, I found the same and I found we stuck with the same movements the players were doing. We just made those movements heavier because if someone's been single leg squatting, taking them back to a back squat, it's probably going to give them back doms right before they start playing again. So we just stuck with their movement and loaded that one. Yep. Stayed in that stream, but then pushed the, the total load up a little bit because they had space to fit it in the loading as the running volumes came down. And then we could go from that point of view. Okay. Now we hit trial games, in-season games. Reese, what is the biggest change going from that pre-season training phase to in-season? What is the biggest issue that you have to deal with now? Um, well, I guess one of the biggest issues is in-game, the intensities yep. through the roof. Yep, uh, and play contact as well. And then you've got contact. You know, you can try and emulate that in training, but it's not going to be the competitive, you know, headbutting that you're getting in an actual game. People are coming out injured. You're not going to see as many contact injuries. You're gonna, hopefully, you're not going to see any contact injuries coming from off-season to pre-season. And then people getting beat up. Yep. With um, introducing trial games and then pre- um, season games, what like percentage of spike would you see in training load typically from the running that they're doing? 
when they go into games and yeah, then training from, from load going, to us. Yeah, from going, like, ramping up the... Would you ramp up the volume leading into those pre-season games? It's going to depend on the coach. Because yeah, it's, it's always going to spike, isn't it? Yeah, typically, yeah. I've found as coaches get younger, and that's been an active focus of the AFL, and it's then filtered down... The younger the coach, the better they are at not doing really stupid shit, but they are still not going to do optimal shit either. Do you think it's in an older culture of coaches to think a big spike in training load means positive adaptation, positive ad- adaptation? Yeah, that's certainly the older generation. I was really lucky that the coach I worked for had recently played in the AFL and had a really good understanding of what had worked for him, and he'd had good coaches when he played. Yeah. So the attitudes he brought across were really good, and then the club kind of followed suit but they'd been under a really old school coach the year before i got there and i was in this coach's first year yeah so because patch came in with new ideas and we came in with new age ideas that lined up well and people were ready for a change because the prior old school coach had been there for years yeah so they wanted to move away from that and the players were saying oh man my body feels great it's a really nice cohesive change yeah so that's one of those things you could just get lucky on like we had no control over that but we didn't have any real battles there so we found the loading at least from my perspective i was rehab not the head snc or anything but speaking to the head snc who was a great coach the loading flowed quite nicely yeah. from pre-season to pre-season games to real games yeah but i know that's oftentimes not the case elsewhere so you do have to be prepared for that. you have to communicate with your athlete Correct. we train a few in here we'll use a case point example we train a couple of brothers who are probably some of the most athletically gifted athletes we have at AIC. However, we know that the training modalities used at their specific club would be very much old school, where they're gonna be running to the ground. And as much as we'd love to be able to do everything under the sun with them, we know that we're just gonna be adding more volume to already excessive training load. I think as well, in terms of how you do that as well, it's an unpopular answer among S&C coaches because a lot of us love to lift, but the thing that has to go is the lifting. You come back to your key basics, what keeps them robust? What do they absolutely need? And I think what that what they actually need and what we think they need can be two different things. Yeah. And if you get them in and you, you've got them, they do their sprint at some point in the session, at some point in the training week, sorry, wherever that is, they hit something for their calves, groins, hamstrings, they're probably going to be okay. There's a lot more we'd like to do in the most ideal world, but if they've ran a 14K game, one game when I was at Coburg, we had a lad run 16 and a half Ks and take heaps of contact in the inside midfield. So the reality of where his body's at, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, is you can't do much with him because he's just got to try and recover. So cut it back to the absolute basics and then go from there. Because like one of those brothers you were talking about played at the weekend and had the absolute shit kicked out of him. I saw him walk into the club after the game. He was knackered. You know what I mean? There's only so much you can do with that body after the fact. You're not going to list that same and i mean imagine you bring him in and you go we're going to back squat and bench press today and we're going heavy it's like that adaptation isn't available to happen regardless of the training funnily enough those were actually removed over the last two and a half years and this one actually suffered quite a few injuries prior to that now it may be a little bit of luck but he's also reduced his training and trained a lot smarter and has had a very very good run with injuries over those two and a half years not good um but you just have to reduce the training load. Usually I have the rule of about 25% to about a third to reduce that. We use another case in point example. We've had a female footy player just recently start that's been training with Jazz. Her training volume was very, very good leading up um, into the preseason and then into the season. 
Now it just had to be cut back. Why? Because she's simply saying she's coming in. Her hamstrings and groin are just sore. Her body's fatigued. She's experiencing body contact for the first time. AFL is a pretty hard sport to play. Man, like I think until you've been close to a game, and I mean like on the sideline, if you never played, which I didn't, so I, I come from a soccer background, until you've been on the sideline of a good level of footy, you don't realise how heavy that contact is. Because it's so normalised in Australia that you kind of see it and you're like, oh yeah, that's just footy, but the toll that takes on a body is big. What a recipe for disaster footy is in terms of physiological qualities. <laughs> Let's have big, powerful bodies that you've got to run fast. You need muscle to protect yourself, but you also got to move that body 15Ks a game. And you've got to take contact in 360 degrees. And you've got to move around in multiple directions. Everyone looks at NFL and rugby as the... Not most dangerous, but the most physically contact sports that you're going to experience. Thing is, AFL is not stop and start like NFL. You have to be able to do multiple things. Rugby is all head on. Yeah, this correct. is 360, as Adam I think mentioned. Rugby and American football have a higher impact collision for collision, but the, at least you are broadly aware most of the time of where it's going to come from. Yeah. The collisions from behind are very, very rare in comparison to footy, where they're just a part of the game. And I think that the players I've been around, the worst contacts are usually the ones that are on 45s sideways. The front on ones are fine because you can prepare yourself. And because they need to be, they need to have that much aerobic capacity. They need to have that much speed. They need to be able to have that much strength and change of direction. Yet they still have to know how to kick a ball, handball, mark. The amount of skill that actually takes to be a footballer, I could almost look at it as an entrepreneur. You need to be good at everything, but you can't be great at anything. As far as I can see, it's the most demanding, multifaceted sport I've ever seen. When you have two pretty opposite physiological qualities, say big, powerful, strong bodies, and then massive aerobic capacity, how much do you think that matters in terms of injury risk? That'd be huge, wouldn't it? Because you're getting dragged in two different directions. I don't know if that's a hard it's brutally difficult on the body. I don't know if that so much impacts injury risk as much as adaptation difficulty. I think probably what I think impacts the injury risk is short, sharp changes of directions with contact, with high running loads that create tissue demands. Yeah. So from a hamstring point of view, you've got guys running 15K games yeah. and trying to sprint and having to be ready for contact. So we're, that's inherently changing running mechanics they're trying to do everything and you can't ever specialize in one thing because I can say a wide receiver, I look after his hamstrings because I know exactly what he's going to have to do. And he's going to run way less than 15Ks in a game. Yeah. So I think just having them expected to do everything along with elite levels of contact. So not bad from an injury risk standpoint, but bad from a what can we train them for because getting dragged here, you're getting dragged over here, then you're getting dragged way over here at the same time. In that case, what's our goal with these players in season? Make them robust, keep them them healthy. Keep them healthy, it literally boils down to that. If we have a very, very raw junior athlete, we might be able to still get some adaptation, some positive adaptation. Literally the adaptation that we're looking for throughout the season is tissue tolerance and making sure they stay on the field. I'd say our in-season list of lifting at Coburg was like half an hour if you took your sweet ass time. Yeah. Like it was just do these, we'll look after your groins, we'll look after your calves, the rest of it, just try and get yourself right for the next weekend. Exactly. And that's really how it goes over the course of the whole season. If they get a bye week, that's not a time to be adding in a shit ton of lifting. That's 
their time to rest because they generally do need the rest. There is a there is a tight balance there. I've seen it go too far the other way, and we we took an injury list from two to many more. I think we got to seven or eight that week because they had a weekend off, and we gave them from Tuesday through the following Tuesday off, including the game. So they missed a th- they get they missed Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday. Came back in the following Tuesday, and we had a big pickup in injuries on Tuesday and Thursday when that hard training started because they were too deloaded. So they need a break but you do need to take care of tissue tolerance and some level of running load over the weekend, particularly the sprinting stuff when they've got that. Are we thinking about the same club when we talk about that? So that's two clubs that we can actually say because I've heard of another one doing it recently, probably in the last two years, and exactly the same happened. The body needs to be conditioned to what it has to do. Continuity is really important. The consistency is really important. So absolutely take a rest, but you got to remember as well, probably the most reported thing to me that causes soreness is total running distance and contact well the contact's gone because they're not playing so you can take care of that accidentally and drop their total running load but it's really important in particular that they sprint and they get some change direction work in through that off week ideally on what would have been game day or as close to it as you can get and don't let them hit the piss too hard because that is going to affect tissue tolerance <laughs> that's the trouble that we face with pretty much every sport but footy seems to be notorious yes <laughs> they can hold their own uh, weekend at the Ponderosa, right, Adam? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Guys, that is the podcast for today for footy players' uh, seasons and what they look like. If you have any questions, if you're a footy player or if you're an SNC coach that's working with some footy players and you have some questions in regards how to set out their training, you know where to find us. Reese, Adam, Jazz, thank you all. And guys, we'll hear from you next time. Thank you.